Hello and welcome to this Footprint Sustainability Symposium in association with Nestle Professional. My name's Nick Hughes, Associate Editor at Footprint, and I'm delighted to be joined by an expert group of guests to discuss and debate the subject of regenerative farming and what it means for the food service sector. Is regenerative simply the latest sustainability buzzword, or is it a term that has real substance and demands the attention and engagement of businesses across the food service supply chain? We've got lots of ground to cover today, so without any delay, let's meet our guests. Cleona, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, so I'm Cleona Duffy. I'm the Head of Partnerships at RSPCA Assured. So I lead on our relationships and engagement with the retail and food service sector um, and encourage uh, partners to and support them on their journey to higher welfare farming. Thank you. And Robin? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Robin Sundaram, and I'm the Responsible Sourcing Manager at Nestle UK which basically means that I lead our, I, I call it our procurement for good strategy. So working with our suppliers all the way back to farmers to try and improve both our social and our environmental impact. Great. And Lee? Hi, yeah, I'm Lee Trulove, Responsible Sourcing Manager for the uh, Farmer Cooperative First Milk. Uh, what I tend to do day to day is uh, interact with both farmers and customers and other stakeholders, uh, quite obviously uh, on sustainability and over the last 12 months, more and more on regenerative farming. Thanks, Lee. And finally, James. Yeah, good morning, everybody. I am James Smith, uh, Managing Director of Loddington Farm uh, down in Kent uh, and uh, advocate for regenerative farming, which we are implementing here in our in our top fruit. Uh, we're mainly tree fruit farmers, um, but diversifying as part of our regenerative strategy, so uh, reintroducing livestock to our, our enterprises as well. So regenerative farming, it, it's a term that, if we rewind a couple of years, to be honest, I'd barely come across it. Now it seems almost every corporate net zero ambition within the food sector references the need to shift to more regenerative methods of farming in some form or other. Um, so perhaps to start, let's try and unpick what it actually means. Because my feeling is that, you know, regenerative, as it applies to farming, still lacks a very clear definition. So, so Robin, perhaps we can start with you. What does regenerative farming mean to Nestle and, and what do you see as the benefits? For us, it's very much uh, farming, going back to more traditional methods of farming. So what's happened over the last sort of 30, 40 years, maybe slightly longer, is that farming has become a lot more intensive. And we as the customers, uh, and we've, we've been part of the part of the reason for that happening is we've tried to grow business we've tried to grow sales and as part of that we've encouraged farmers generally not throughout the industry not just Nestle uh, to to implement more intensive approaches and that's things like using more uh, pesticides herbicides um, uh, turning over the ground too much not not uh, not planting enough um, cover crops and variety of cover crops so it's what we want to do is go back to working with our farmers to encourage that that um, move back to this more traditional way of farming. But we're also very very clear that this isn't uh, this isn't simple to do. Uh, farmers have been uh, implementing these practices for a long time, and so if we're going to support our farmers through the process, number one, we have to make the farmers front and centre. It's it's about it's got to work for them or they're not going to do it. But number two is that we've got to support them both financially, particularly as you go back to regenerative farming, potentially your yields are going to go down in the first 
couple of years. So how do we support them financially through that process, but also long-term is to make sure that we've got those long-term contracts in place. So that's kind of real top line, what it means to us. Great. Does anyone have any different or additional views on what regenerative farming means, perhaps some of the outputs from regenerative farming? Yeah, I think really reiterating what Robin is saying, uh, the biggest thing that the, one of the biggest challenges we face in in farming and food production is that nearly all of us have been driven um, to specialise. Uh, so we become very, very binary uh, in terms of I'm an apple grower, you're a dairy farmer, you're a chicken farmer, uh, you're an arable farmer. And so everyone has sort of chased economies of scale and efficiency. And as Robin says, we've intensified the way we have been uh, trying to produce crops. And that's that's because we've been, got, found ourselves in a very much a monoculture situation where you're entirely focused on a single crop. And you do that as intensively as you can because you need as much yield uh, and profit per hectare. For me, the, the the whole challenge for the industry is that regenerative farming thrives on a diverse range of crops and, and products coming out of an ecosystem-based approach to farming. So instead of us seeing um, our farms as a, a sort of a, 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 what two-dimensional piece of ground where I'm just trying to produce as many tonnes of apples per hectare as possible, uh, the idea of regenerative farming is that you stack enterprises on your land. So you try and convert one hectare into five hectares because you have, you know, apples, you have uh, poultry, some eggs, some, you know, and but it's that that in its own right is a real challenge to come up with a new model or, or going back to an older model because we still need to do any one of them in a, in a, in a kind of an efficient, um, economically viable way. So... I would say that in its most simple definition, that farming has been a reductionist, um, uh, basically reductionist industry or pro- set of processes for the last 50, 60 years. And we need to, we, the way I see it is that we've been like living on credit. So as, as far as a farming industry. So what we need to do now is start paying, start paying our natural capital back, which is reinvesting in our soil re you know seeing seeing the soil as the basis of our ecosystem and investing back into it in the way in the, the best way we can do that is to use the, the the basic principles of regenerative farming to to drive uh, drive our soil health back to a, a position whereby our entire food system is underpinned by healthy soil because that will resonate through uh, in terms of nutrition and, and human health so it's it's basically a, a healthy natural farming system which puts back what we've borrowed um, because a lot of our farming systems now are, are starting to struggle. Definitely, and James, actually, I think I think it's really interesting you saying about that monoculture. Um, my my role previous to this was at Fair Trade, um, so I would have gone out to country to visit lots of farmers um, in Africa and other regions. And you know, it's that more traditional type where you're seeing four or five different crops on a farm. You know, that that are having different harvest times, that they have it stacked throughout the year, and actually that are complementing each other as well, um, and and supporting that soil. So I think it's it's getting back to that really as well. But but also I think it's it's getting back to those traditional methods but actually being able to use the benefits of more modern techniques and you know so like modern veterinary practices to support with animals joining and actually being able to analyze the soil health as well so you know what actually you might need to be doing there as well. 
just to build on that, I think as as buyers, we should be looking to buy the variety of crops that the farmer is producing. So they're not just a cocoa farmer or a coffee farmer. We, we buy the variety. Sorry, Lee, I know you're about to, just to, just to let everyone know, Lee and I have been working closely together for, I've just realised it's nearly eight years now, Lee, um, around uh, the, the milk programme that we've had in place with First Milk. So Lee is very, very close to um, exactly what goes on in the ground and what we're trying to deliver. Lee, I think you're about to say something. Yeah, thanks for the extra intro there, Robin. Um <laughs> I think we're all going to uh, be guilty, perhaps, of uh, vehemently agreeing with each other on this. So, that, so that, I don't know if we're going to end up with much debate, but uh, I, I'll try and bring in just slightly different angles, but that's not to counter anything anybody's said already. Um, I think, you know, we're on the, on the verge of war at the moment, so it's, it's quite, uh, I think, prosaic to look back at how we've got here. Uh, and if, if you think about the food shortages in the 40s and 50s, it's actually still very seminal to where we are today because agriculture was told to feed the world. Um, it was told, obviously, to feed the UK, food security. So we ended up, I think, with all of influences on farmers. So whether that be the government or the supply chain or the banks or universities and colleges and education, the whole system was about yield. It was about yield almost at co any other cost didn't matter. And what we're, what we're doing today, which I think is why it's so complex and why um, it's very hard to navigate for all of us, but most importantly for the farmers, is the land and farms are now expected to deliver so many outcomes. And, and all of the education and all of the living memory is actually about a single outcome. So, you know, to change from, from one to the other is, is never going to be easy. And... I think, the, you know, we know that in the dairy industry since the 1960s, we tried to increase the milk yield of a cow. And the milk yield of the cow uh, arguably has led to lots of other problems. But genetic progress is actually still one of the answers. But if, if, you, take, um, if you take a yield focus, you know, a reductionist focus, as James said, what you do is you end up with farms that aren't economically sustainable because yield becomes the first output that they, uh, they seek. You then think the, the environmental unintended consequences you know, haven't been measured until recently. And then I think importantly what we're now looking at is both the human health of those involved in the supply chain, but also the health of, and nutrient density of the food that we've ended up with. So there's so many layers, there's so much nuance, and I, I do, you know, I do feel there is frustration within the farming industry, which I guess I'm here partly to represent, that um, all of a sudden they have to deliver everything, and and they've got to do it yesterday. Um, and there's a real willingness to change, but I think you know the farming calendar and the breeding cycle of animals, etc., is you know is pretty slow compared with, you know, how a PLC might choose to change. So I think there's, uh, you know, we've got to take the farmers with us, uh, but equally we've got to challenge uh, bad practice and introduce good practice. I think that's a, it's a really good point, Lee. The, I, what I find quite interesting is it doesn't matter which sector we're in, we can, we can see it's very clear the road that, that has led us to where we are now. And, you know, with the advent of, of chemistry that, that made crops perform um, better and, you know, developments with, with breeding and everything else to increase outputs of milk and things, you you can see exactly how we've ended up where we've ended up. And I think that is a, a, an important part of the piece for us to almost 
sort of backtrack a bit and turn left or turn right in order to to enable that change in direction. I think a great example in terms of the the, the dairy side of things um, was the a couple of weeks ago on on your farm, a, a chap um, Tim May from Kings Clear Estate down in Hampshire was was on uh, it was on your farm and he he has it's a fair sized estate but he's actually setting up an association of businesses and partnerships whereby dairy is part of their rotation on the farm um they have a mobile parlor which means the cows are always out on grass and there's no you know you don't have slurry tanks and expensive infrastructures and you know the the, the cows on that particular dairy are, uh, are producing a better a quality of milk and milk and milking once a day rather than twice a day they're probably they're probably each cow is probably producing about 40 percent of what a, a high performing animal might do in terms of milk yield but it's a gentler system and a low input um and more profitable system so that's the beauty whenever i'm talking to other farmers about regenerative farming my first question is do you want a more profitable farm um because that is what regenerative farming delivers and it's really about, I think, one of the challenges for the industry is, is to help come up with a roadmap for farmers to, so that we can uh, – the work. some of the work I do with a friend of mine, Ben Taylor-Davis, um, is, is this looking at practical implementation of regenerative farming practices on farms. So, so you, Because it's all very well and good to tell a farmer, as you say, Lee, just say, well, this is – you now got to do this um, – but if you if you can go to them with a with a clear clear way in to to doing things in a better way and ultimately leading to a more profitable enterprise, then I think that's that's the one thing the the industry in terms of looking at food service and and corporates and you know those that have got more resources than the the, the farmer on the ground is is that kind of the hand holding um, piece and and giving them giving them that plan for whichever sector you're in, um, whether that's whether that's putting two farmers together to start, you know, using, you know, because you can still, you can, you can, re, you can be a regenerative farmer at scale. You know, you don't have to be uh, a tiny, you know, doing it on one hectare sort of thing. Uh, and so I think that's a, there's a real opportunity there. I absolutely agree, James. I think um, some of the concerns that we've got right now and why we are attracted to regenerative farming um, is that we could see that our industry was heading in a certain direction. Uh, particularly um, over two years ago, we were worried about the sort of inevitability of intensification and ended up with entirely housed herds. So so we brought out a pledge that 94% of our members have signed that their cows will actually graze grass for at least 120 days. Obviously, in some of our Scottish areas, the, the season is shorter, so that's why we went for that number. But that sort of started our journey uh, along the regenerative route, and I think that's how we've got to phrase it. Regenerative farming cannot, you know, for my uh, view, our view, cannot be a standard. It can't be a certification. It's a journey. You never actually can say I'm fully regenerative. You can just say I'm trying to implement regenerative practices. And I think you know, that gives credit that there is actually already a lot of regenerative practice happening, uh, and enables people, I think, to to embrace it more than if it's an entirely new concept. And also, I think we in the supply chain, and, and indeed, you know, the wider public need to appreciate that very very quickly we've become very carbon centric. So we're now almost entirely focused on net zero and and, and reaching um, 
some kind of mythical carbon number. We're not even sure if the measurement of that carbon is accurate, especially when, when you talk about cows. Uh, and then part of that carbon measurement is we're ignoring what's happening in the soil. So it, 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 it's, a, it's a mess, an absolute mess in terms of uh, incentivizing farmers to be net zero. For some of them, they, they will be told it's a technological process. For us, we believe the reason regenerative farming has got so much to offer is that net zero is actually a biological process. And we've got to look at the carbon cycle, the water cycle, and the nutrient cycle. Um, and then we can obviously underpin that with healthy soils. And for us, that's what regenerative farming is. Lee, you've preempted a question I wanted to ask, which is about uh, the potential for storing carbon in soils from regenerative practices is clearly one of the reasons it features so prominently in many corporate net zero commitments. Um, I just wonder, is, is that potential as great as we're being led to believe? And if, if so, how can farmers measure that carbon storage in a way that allows buyers to demonstrate progress against their net zero commitments? I'm sure somebody else will come in. I'll try and keep this answer brief and, and allow the debate. Um, I think for us, it's a really important point because it enables us to promote grass-based dairy farming. Uh, but grass on its own isn't a panacea, but it, it's, it's more likely to sequester carbon than, than a sort of arable uh, cultivation rotation. Um, but I think our view is regenerative farming is that carbon is almost a... Um, a happy coincidence, carbon sequestration, of all the other things that, that regenerative farming can deliver, and that we can't really target it um, because weather can interfere, um, you know, all sorts of uh, crop diseases and, um, you know, crop failures can interfere. So I think it's, it's at least five years, probably a 10-year process to be able to prove the real numbers. Um, we're doing that. We're, we're we're core sampling every acre of, of a percentage of our farms down to a meter to get that baseline and we'll come back in five years and, and take it again. But I'm sure there'll be some that will have achieved, you know, very significant sequestration and there's others that might have done the same interventions that, that won't for, for whatever reason and soil type, etc. So that's why we cannot be carbon centric. Because if the carbon output is the only one we measure, we'll be guilty of repeating yield being the only measure. Um, and, and we've got to look at, the, as James said, the whole ecosystem services. Uh, biodiversity, I don't know if we've mentioned yet, but uh, you know, the, the biodiversity crisis arguably is, is, is as important as the carbon crisis. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that was a short answer. but <laughs> Just to build on what Lee said, is the way that we're one of the ways we're managing to get our Nestle farmers who, who are part of First Milk to implement all this is that we have separated payments between payment for the milk and payment for these uh, these services. Is, uh, and uh, yeah, carbon reduction is clearly one aspect, but things like biodiversity, water, the others, we've also, um, and we've also brought in some, there are some social um, elements to it, things like school children visiting farms, um, and that kind of thing. So, it's it's we've created a whole program and a payment mechanism behind this, which we believe. I mean, the farmers have all signed up. They've put in their their um, their plans for this year and moving forward. So it allows us to to be able to uh, start to track. But as Lee said, actually being able to measure these improvements, track them verify that they're actually making a difference that's all still relatively early days and there's a lot of work 
to be done around that. I see Claire is heading, nodding her head there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I think there's so it's such a a developing area, isn't it? I think, and I, but I think definitely not only tackling, you know, targeting that carbon, I think is so important because a lot of the conversations I have on a daily basis with, you know, businesses either in retail or food service, they're so focused on that net zero, you know, they're, they're looking at, okay, well, actually, we'll just have cows indoors at all times, you know, not looking at there are alternative solutions. Um, You know, and and I think that's, that's really important to be able to quantify for industry, particularly. And, And I think particularly that biodiversity and water, particularly is a really key one as well, because I know, you know, when we're looking at things like, you know, trade deals with other countries, we don't want to just be, you know, handing the, these issues off to other countries. So, you know, just for example, like the Australian trade deal, you know, we have government saying, well, actually, it's very similar standards, but actually, because they're talking about the the carbon emissions. But when you then start to look at the amount of water usage and Australian meat production and things and crop production, and also, you know, the biodiversity loss, that's really significant. So we don't want to benefit the UK and hand off those issues to other countries, I think is really key too. I think it's really important that we don't get bogged down in in single issues. I think we the, the carbon cycle um, you can't make the carbon cycle bigger or smaller. There's a there's a finite amount of carbon in our planet and our atmosphere, and it's the it's the distribution that is is that's gone got out of kilter. So we've got too much inorganic carbon in the atmosphere and not enough organic carbon in in the soil. Fundamentally, the reality is, is if we can if we build call it diversity uh, biodiversity organic matter whatever if we can build one uh, percent of um, organic matter back into our soils the the United States for example if you if the farmed area of the United States builds one percent uh, gains a one percent increase in organic matter then they offset all of their carbon emissions for that year uh, in that you know just in that simple that simple move but as Lee says you you can't compare you, you know, one percent gain on a certain soil type is ten times the one percent gain on a, a different soil. So it's there are so many variables, and I think by building on this, the biodiversity piece is that if you build biodiversity in your soil, by definition, you have to you have to increase your organic carbon in your soil. So um, you know, biodiversity at all levels is what will will basically take the carbon cycle back down into the soil rather than it all being in the inorganic form and floating around in our atmosphere causing various problems for us um you you drive it down into the soil and again it's a classic uh, a classic example with the you know let's put all our cows indoors to stop the emissions well you need cows out on pasture to drive nutrient cycling and biodiversity on pasture so you can't you know again it's the classic that you know you demonise the cow um, and miss the point. It's um, we're we're really good at having complex complex debates about the wrong issues, um, and and so it's about how everything is integrated. Um, and again, I the way I the way I've tried to introduce the, these sorts of things onto my farm is I firstly just look at how I can do less harm. That's step step one. Do less harm because you can't fix it all in a in a day. Um, but it's it's a bit like the vegan debate. Um, you know, if you do, if you want to be a vegan for your own choices, then absolutely brilliant. I'm a, very much in in favour of people making their own decisions about what they eat. 
but you can't claim that it will save the world um, when nat- natural systems depend on large herbivores as part of ecosystems to to drive that. Um, you, there's little point plant just planting a cover crop on a on an arable farm and not grazing it. Um, it it's better than just a, a, a monoculture. Um, so, and I think if you if you, you what the last thing we want is a regenerative standard. Um, you know, you see this debate and it's like, oh, regenerative isn't enough. It's got to be no-till organic regenerative or it's got to be, you know, and we will quickly we will quickly get, get bogged down um, at trying to measure the wrong things and become victims of bad science if we're not careful. James, just to come back, because Lee made a similar point that regenerative is a journey, not a standard. But if businesses, if businesses are using it as a term in their sustainability plans and in their marketing output, do we not at least need some key indicators around what it has to deliver? Otherwise, we risk it being used by some essentially as greenwash. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because I've spoken to some arable farms that go, that say we're doing a bit of regen. We've bought a direct drill, um, you know, so they, they've they've gone and bought a piece of kit because a lot of farmers enjoy buying kit. Um, they've bought a piece of kit to to solve the problem, and I think. In its simplest form, if you go back to you know Gabe Brown and those guys and and the five principles of of regenerative farming, um, you know the question to any farmer that's claiming they're being regenerative is are they are they meeting those sort of those five the, the five pillars as it were, um, and I think I think it's really important that that we have coherent measures in terms of like lee says get your baselines like there's you can't you get you if you start on a journey if you if you don't know where you started you you're going to struggle to work out where you know where you're going so getting all those baselines done there's some there's some very good soil tests now that you can you know look at you can look at the the respiration rates of the soil and you can look at organic matter and you know you can go as complex as you like but i think for any given farm you you get your baselines and then you you start to evaluate it over a longer period of time to start to to gain patterns so there has to be there has to be um you know it has to be you need to be able to measure benefits um but it's you you're if as soon as you plonk in a one size fits all standard um it will it will start to fail in my opinion somebody that um influences me recently is a, a guy you may know called rob york and he, he, just this morning he actually put a little bit of a uh, a vlog on um and basically saying that, that farmers um shouldn't be told what to do they should be told what outcomes we're looking for because they will find the best way to then achieve those outcomes you know, according to their local environment, their skills, their their land capabilities, their investment abilities. You know, there's so many different variables. But if we say you have to do it according to a blueprint, you, 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 the input becomes more of a driver than the output. So I think we need to share the outcomes. Uh, as James has said, you know, for me, the most simple outcome, and you have to get simple outcomes as well, is earthworm count. So, you know, if you've got a soil devoid of earthworms, you've probably got something wrong. Now, that doesn't give you all the answers, but it's a damn good KPI that just you and a spade can find out. Um, And we could talk about the soil food web and all the complexity of it, but uh, we also got to have some signal species so farmers don't rely on external auditors to find out what their their measures are. They should be able to find them out themselves. For for me, that's uh, this whole... Talking about the outcomes is really, really important because 
what it then allows us to do, and Lee and I are working on a, an approach called Lens, um, but it allows us to remind people that that regenerative farming isn't just about the food industry. It has implications for so many different industries. So if a farmer it starts to implement regenerative farming on their farm, if the outcomes are related to biodiversity, water, um, uh, CO2, long-term resilience to climate change, then then it's not just the food industry, but I said that some of the stuff that we're working on is we're working with the water industry because they've got really clear outcomes they're looking for in terms of uh, the pollution of, of the, the waterways. The, um, and then you've got the uh, the insurance industry you're looking at every year, they're seeing the cost go up because of climate change. So actually implementing regenerative farming has benefits to that industry. We've got local councils that we're working with that every year are seeing costs go up because of flooding and all the rest. So there are so many different industries can also benefit from regenerative farming. So the opportunity and the reason we're, we're working with these different industries is that you can actually, the farmer has a number of potential customers for the work that he or she is doing and, uh, and the businesses can share the investment as well, which means actually you can really start to scale, uh, scale regenerative farming, potentially quite quickly if you can get it right. But it does come back to the points that that James and Leah's made around. You've got to have actual, um, you've got to be able to prove you're actually making a difference, you know, uh, and that's and that comes back to your measures and and the science. Well, look, look, let's. I'm keen to talk about the implications for businesses further down the supply chain because a lot of listeners. So this will be, you know, will work for consumer or clients facing food service businesses who may be two or three steps removed from the farmer. So how can those kind of businesses support uh, farmers in making the shift to more regenerative uh, approaches? Good question. I mean, one of the things that we're, we're starting to do is work with our, our suppliers and uh, start to understand, do they have plans in place? And the reality is you do start with the net zero because that's something that you can go in and be quite clear about is do you have a, a have you thought about it do you have an approach um the thing that we have to do next is be able to work with them to 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 improve that understanding of what they can and can't do um so and that's still early days for us we're still we're still working through like for instance the work that we're doing with first milk is i would say leading in terms of within nestle um and we're taking that learning and we're, do, we're using it with our wheat farmers and we'll be using it with our sugar farmers, for instance, because they're all you know, in the UK. Uh, but it's still early days, but getting those the, 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 the people further down the supply chain on board, we have to encourage it, but we've got to do it in the right way that we don't, uh, what's the word, we're not dictating, I suppose. It's probably the best way to put it. I think I would... Um... I would say the food service, probably the, the most important measure, the next step is to have those relationships. So it's so easy in food service for the, the origins of the product to be hidden to the consumer. It, it's become actually less easy for that to happen with mainstream retailing. You know, there's much more labeling, uh, there's much more uh, focus on, on, on where the products come from. We, it may be imperfect, but it has moved. And I think at the very best end of food service, there's a, a consumer buys into the entire story of that product. But 
there's so much a food service where that transparency doesn't exist. So I think if if you are a credible um, supporter of regenerative farming, you can only do that if you have a relationship with your farmers. You know them, not not just sort of superficially, but you know them. Uh, you, you have a knowledge of how they farm. Uh, you understand their pressures, and you work with them on the transition. But it starts with relationship rather than starting, as we've said, you know, with standards or rules. I think a big part that can be played is is about uh, as as Lee talks about is reconnecting consumers with the very origin of their food uh, because that's one of our single biggest challenges is just this complete and utter lack of uh, understanding because we've because we have become so far removed you know there's a there's a lot of kids think that chicken comes you know a chicken is in a plastic tray and there's four pieces of it like you know four fillets and that's that's chicken um and so i think there's there's that there's that reconnecting consumers through messaging and and um you know media and marketing that that the supply chain can be involved with and i also think then on a practical level helping um with knowledge exchange so so getting farmers and growers cross-sector talking to each other and and celebrate best best practice you know get people that aren't sure about what's going on out onto other farms um to see how people are managing to do it um, because that's one of the single most empowering things is just going out and standing on a farm and and feeling what it feels like because I, not so long ago back in the winter i was on one farm in suffolk which is very uh, an arable farm very traditional um it was all kind of sprayed off stubbles and plows you know people plowing uh, everything and then I'm visiting a friend of mine in Wiltshire this afternoon. We're actually recording another podcast um, with him this evening. And I went from one farm to his farm, and the you you can just feel that it's better. And it goes back to what Lee was saying about easy measures. Sometimes, as a farmer and, and someone that's connected to the land, just the way you feel when you're standing in the in in the rural environment it makes a massive difference so you know if you can get one farmer to stand you know to go and see another farmer and, and understand how it how it works um then i think that's a another great way that um maybe businesses that are one step removed from it can actually help implement that that ongoing change definitely i, I definitely agree and i think um I think particularly what James says about connecting with a customer is really key as well, because actually that that's what's going to drive that demand and actually give that support and, you know, potentially that additional piece in the cost price as well that farmers can invest in these methods. And I think it's, you know, you know, some some listeners to this may be, you know, purchasing through wholesalers. So it's asking, you know, their wholesalers as well those questions about where are these coming from, what practices are being used, because the more that's asked, the more they'll start asking further up the supply chain also. And I think, you know, that really getting that connection with customer and it being on menus that will also make customers realize when they go to other businesses, oh, hang on, this isn't on the menu. So actually that, you know, why isn't it? And they'll start asking those questions, I think, which is really key. Um, and I think also what what James said there really around that sharing of best practice is really, is really key also, because I think, you know, I think you had mentioned earlier, James, about having, you know, bringing animals onto the farm, you know, recently. So, you know, a lot of these things can be new practices um, and new species or crops for people. So actually, how do we share that best practice? And we're doing, we're trying to do that through RSPCA Short about giving some guidance on animals, you know, because actually, 
you know, we, we obviously have, you know, standards in our dairy about having those time, you know, out grazing as well. But it's also actually if people aren't used to that, how do we make sure we're maintaining biosecurity there as well? So we're protecting against future illnesses too there as well. Cleona, the, the view expressed so far has, has been that actually regenerative agriculture doesn't, shouldn't have a standard as such. As, as someone involved in a certification scheme, do you see any way in which RSPCA Assured might intersect or interact with regenerative farming approaches? Yeah, I mean, we have, I would say, a lot of approaches that definitely support. Um, you know, we would have a lot of those things in our standards uh, as usual, because obviously, as an RSPCA, we're looking also at the impact on wildlife always as well, because it's not just obviously farm animals we're looking at. Um, so we will always have um, um, piece in our standards around, you know, tree, you know, on all of our farms, there has to be tree planting, you know, but obviously that comes back to also the farmer being able to then decide what trees are best in their particular area. So there is that, op- you know, that scope for interpretation. And I think also the piece around being out to graze, there's a lot, a lot there as well. So there's a lot of really complementary practices, I think. So I, I do agree, though, I think on the regenerative, it's it's a journey. So I think actually by just having a, by having a standard, I think that would put a pressure on people to rush the journey. And I, I would, you know, worry about that. But I think there are ways that people can obviously have certifications like ours, you know, at the same time and actually be using that as a, a key way to communicate that and say, well, this is a key way to communicate that actually the welfare is there, but also you could be talking about the regenerative practices also as they're coming on side as well. Slight change of uh, direction, but I'm quite interested to know the panel's view on the the, the government's new schemes that are coming through and what you think about them or what you've heard about them, really. Definitely things are moving in the right direction. I think that my my main concern is that anything that is is put together at sort of government level is often not flexible enough um, and can can quite quickly become out of date or or and so what it tend what it's in de- the the risk is that people get locked into arrangements with a with a degree of financial risk um, because. I don't know whether the, what the government are going to be like now, but certainly when it was EU funding, you know, there was always the threat of the last five years of funding being, you know, clawed back if you haven't got it got it right. So I think it's interesting that it's driving dr- driving significant change. I think again, there are. I don't think that it's always we don't always get it right, and sometimes conservation. Uh, practices in the UK are have a actually have a, a negative impact on on biodiversity at large. A, a classic is when you 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 safeguard an area for a single species because it's a rare species, and you do it at the expense of a whole load of other species that would also quite like to be there. So, so I think I think it's an interesting move. I think it will help. I mean, for example, if you uh, if you're an apple grower and you want to uh, you'd like to go organic, there is now. Uh, an area payment to help you know move into organic so and then then on an ongoing um, area payment for organic farming you know effectively rewarding that slight yield loss um, and and everything else so I think they're they're very interesting but again I kind of approach them with caution um, just because I think they can be too prescriptive and they can dull down creativity at the farmer level which I think is really important uh, when we we're, we're going for this kind of natural um, on this natural led journey I think I think Robin the feedback from from our members is that actually the commercial relationships are much more influential 
And um, they are actually, to build on what James said, the commercial arrangements are actually uh, more able to adapt quickly and, and build on what I said earlier. There is no relationship between a farmer and DEFRA, no, no, no personal relationship, but there can be between the farmer and, and their customer. And I think that, that builds um, much more responsibility and accountability. That's not to say, you know, obviously farmers are going to need to be financially viable. They need to do what they can to receive the government funding. But if you make that an objective, as James has said, the unintended consequences can be quite big. So it's got to be almost, uh, I'm going to farm this way anyway, therefore I happen to be aligned with some of these uh, pots of money. I think definitely, you know, from a from a welfare point of view, um, the incentives announced this week are really, really positive. Um, and actually, I think, you know, from a um, from a regenerative point of view, you know, just, obviously they've only been announced in the in uh, two days ago. But looking at it from a regenerative point of view, I know we're at early stages of, you know, how do we quantify some of these things? But you know, we do know from some of the studies we've seen and done that actually there are, you know, benefits from that sort of that regenerative. Uh, practices and being outdoors and grazing there's reduced lameness or you know in dairy cows we definitely see reduced mastitis and things like that and actually the key welfare areas that the government are encouraging people to tackle in sheep and cows particularly the majority of those could be really addressed through regenerative practices so I think it's it's a quite nice holistic approach on that side Um, but I think you know I think we're definitely of the same concern I know I touched on it earlier as well about about those trade deals that were encouraging UK farmers to go in this direction but there's no protection in, in, in trade deals that actually those standards need to be maintained for imports so I think that's that's a real concern I think of ours is that actually we're just exporting potentially those lower welfare or you know damaging practices to other countries just before we finish up I, uh, because we don't have long to go but i would like to touch briefly on price because it's so frequently cited as a barrier to food service buyers do do we need to accept that businesses who commit to sourcing from regenerative farms will have to pay more for those products or is that not necessarily the case price becomes quite a narrow uh, focus again doesn't it and we're talking about holistic so is the price in the short term worth paying the potential cost to your reputation in the long term um, I, I think you know one example which probably is more aligned to james's uh, t- style of business than dairying is, is seasonality so if you need apples all year round um, okay you may not be able to get them entirely from the uk but with with storage and and uh, there is options to do that but if immediately that the variety and the shape and the colour that you want is not available locally, you go straight to Chile, then you know you you really destroy that trust in the supply chain that you've built up. So I think we have to, and it, again it goes back to that consumer thing. I think we shouldn't always want all the food all the time. We shouldn't want asparagus at Christmas. We shouldn't want strawberries, you know, for for February or whatever. Um, so you know. I think the media and and the uh, you know celebrity chefs and all of that have mentioned these things, but um, I think we ought to be proud of eating a more seasonal diet, and I think that you know that would uh, that would help with some of this price pressure, because um, the, the the price pressure, as I said, is it can be a bit of a short term um, misnomer that you, you you're causing risk to your supply chain in the long term. The way I see it is that. Um 
there was uh, years ago there was uh, i read there was this little article that was called how much does cheap cost and um and you know it was this whole thing about the the, the this 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 massive drive about that food should be cheap and that we, we we've almost we've got a culture of cheap food in the uk and the what i like about successful regenerative farming models is that because you have so many outputs you're not as price focused on any one single part of your uh, your business so as a as a fruit grower if i can if i can have two or three more outputs from my one orchard i don't need to hit 70 tons a hectare because i need to hit 70 tons a hectare to cope with a lower price so actually i think if the consumer if if we it, it all comes back all of this is completely linked isn't it so it's like it's if we reconnect the consumer so they're actively choosing to eat food that is better for the environment rather than just cheap then that will start to look after the price i think the price will sort itself out if you fix the whole if you if you look at it from a holistic or a systems sort of based approach i think robin made a really good point earlier about you know actually trying to find the market for those products as well so actually asking your farmers that you're working with what other products are you growing you know so actually how do you how do you support them on that journey I think as well and I think you know obviously um my my day-to-day is a lot more looking at the animal side of things you know and we definitely see at the moment an awful lot of you know a huge amount of demand for higher welfare meat but actually because it's often in the retail sector it's for particular cuts you know so there's a price for those cuts that's higher welfare but actually the rest of the carcass is being sold just at market price so actually how do we create the market for the rest of that and I think actually food service has a really key area to play in that all right sorry my dog has just decided to join in um you know food service has a really key area to play in that as well around actually because they will often take an awful lot of those cuts also I think your dog, Cleona, is indicating that we've run out of time and that perhaps it's, uh, perhaps it's time for, for walkies. So, um, look, it, it's been a fascinating conversation and I'm sure for, for many listeners, hopefully a really helpful introduction to the concept of regenerative farming and also how food service uh, businesses can support it moving forwards. So thank you all. Thanks to Cleona, to James, to Robin and to Lee. Thank you to Nestle Professional for sponsoring this Footprint Sustainability Symposium. And thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by the Footprint Media Group. To find out more, visit foodservicefootprint.com.